when I was in school, I had not legally changed my name yet. Adams? What happened is you didn't raise your hand for roll call, then they would write you down as like absent. And so the teacher, the instructor had called me by my dead name. And so I was like so scared to raise my hand because I'm like, I'm obviously trans, but I didn't want to get in trouble for not like raising my hand. So I raised my hand. So that outed me to everybody. I ended up talking to him afterwards. And then he's like, I'm so sorry. Like he texted me. But he said he's, like, truly apologetic about it. But the thing is, like, outing someone as trans is extremely dangerous. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your time. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Welcome to episode four of our series on food, conflict, and unity. In this series, we'll be exploring the life stories of culinary pioneers, those who seek to transform cuisine, preserve culture, and unite the global community. Today, we'll be hearing from the founder of One Arrow Meats, Heat Liberty, as he shares his pursuit of community identity and closure. From discovering acceptance in the drag scene to the search for his adoptive parents to eventually opening up his own bacon business, Heat's journey is defined by taking risk. Risk that would eventually provide the foundation for success. Now, with a company that produces 800 pounds of bacon a week, Heat is the force pushing back on society's limits. How he made all of this happen, we'll get to in a bit. But first, let's go back in time, back to 1700s Canada, where colonizers settled into the fur trade. I kind of want to go back to Cremate and just maybe a little bit of like the origins of that community, like because it's kind of like your, your story before your story even starts. So can you give a little context to what that is and who that is? So Métis people are basically the settlers and colonizers that came to Canada in the early, you know, mid 1700s, early 1800s that came for the fur trade in Canada. So they started to make settlement in the middle of Saskatchewan and uh, they were mostly French settlers that came. And so they met the Cree people and they, you know, they found a wife and they wanted to settle there and have families and make something for themselves. And that's where the, um, the two, you know, people of origins came to be one. And the Cree people, like, what were their communities like before the settlers came in? Uh, they were primarily people that heavily relied on buffalo. So were they nomadic? They were, they were infamously nomadic. So they would set up camps and keep on moving. Like, they never stayed in one place at a time. But then once the, the French settlers and the fur trappers came, that's where the Métis people came and they started to build a home and build, you know, families. How you're describing it seems pretty amicable because I'm, I'm thinking of American indigenous and settler relations. Uh, it was pretty violent. Was, was this a, a different encounter w- between these two peoples? Yes. Like you say, amicable. And, you know, the Métis people, they just wanted to like live a good life and have their own, you know, have their own places to live. But the government didn't like that. They were extremely racist and they wanted to be able to control what the Native people were allowed to do in around Canada. And so Sir John A. Macdonald, who's the uh, the first Prime Minister of Canada, he got the army to like break apart the people, like the Métis people in Saskatchewan. And there was actually like a famous battle called the Battle of Batoche. And it was led by Louis Riel and Gabriel Dumont. And they just tried to fight back with the government and said, you can't do this to us. You know, in the end, they didn't win that war. But yeah, it's it's kind of how residential schools started as well. Like Sir John A. Macdonald, he's, he's the one that publicly funded, like government funded residential schools. And he wanted the Native people to assimilate to the way of Canadians. So what is a residential school? 
a residential school is a place that uh, children were taken between the ages of four and 16. It was a place to get rid of their culture and the teachings of, you know, their tribes. And so they were taught not to speak their own language and they got their hair cut. The government of Canada and primarily the Catholic churches that ran the residential schools. And so I believe it's been 150,000 children were taken away from their families from the 1830s. And then the last residential school was closed in 1996, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. Principal Eric Barrington heads one of Canada's 69 Indian residential schools. They have a total of 11,000 pupils, orphans, convalescents. Those who live too far in the wilderness to get to a daily school. They learn not only games and traditions, such as the celebration of St. Valentine's Day, but the mastery of words, which will open to them the whole range of the ordinary Canadian curriculum. With the last one closing as late as 1996, the effects of residential schools have been devastating. The Canadian government created and helped run the residential school system, which was meant to kill the Indian and the child. After being forced to leave their families, many children suffered horrific abuses, such as rape, torture, and even death. I don't think our parents knew what was happening in those schools. They didn't know the horrors. They didn't know the loneliness. For any child, being ripped away from their family is a traumatizing event. But imagine that with added stress of leaving behind your language, religion, and culture. They were robbed of every comfort they knew, and any resistance they showed was often punished with violent abuse. It's cruel in a way that's almost impossible to fathom, and the impact is still felt today. The cultural loss led to trauma that sent echoes through generations, echoes that include a strong sense of powerlessness, stress, and loss, something that has made the indigenous communities prone to chronic illness, anxiety disorders, and PTSD. But these lingering shadows of the past aren't all that create an impact. Discrimination is still rampant. When I was in grade three, we had this project from our teacher that said, what's your heritage? And so I didn't know what my heritage was because my mom had like blue eyes and like light, like dark blonde hair. And so I asked her what my heritage was. And it just really, uh, that was when I found out that I was adopted and I was so devastated. But I, I kind of knew. She told me that I was First Nations, but I was actually ashamed of my heritage. And there was just so much racism when I was growing up. And I was grew up, like, went to school in, like, the early 90s. And so being First Nations was something to be ashamed of. Like, why would I feel that way? And I'm eight years old. So obviously, like, I could experience, like, racism. And I saw racism. And it was very segregated as well in school with, like, the Native kids playing with each other and then the white kids playing with each other. It was not very mixed. I went to a Catholic school, so there was like the Catholic teachings and there was Indigenous students as well, but I mostly played with like the white, the white kids. Yeah, my mom, she definitely struggled with mental health. So my mom and her former husband adopted us, but she, you know, took us away in the middle of the night from him. And um, I think I was maybe four or five years old. And then she takes us to this like house I've never seen before. And then we just started living there. We still stayed at the same school, but basically my mom ended up divorcing him. And then she took him to court so she could get primary custody of us. And we're just completely confused. And like, you're just so young that you don't really, you just end up being confused and just what's going on sort of thing. She coached my sister and I to testify in court that he abused her, which he didn't, and that he abused us, which she didn't. And so that was a very traumatizing experience for us. Like, 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 did she like sit you down and say like, this is what you have to say when a person asks you this? Yeah, she said, you need to say this or I'll never see you again and you'll, you'll be split up. It was just very, very traumatizing. And we just felt so ashamed because my sister and I knew that what he had done was not real, not true. And so we carried this guilt with us for so long. Being forced to leave your home in the middle of the night would cause feelings of confusion for anyone, child or not. But for a four to five-year-old like Heat, still in the early stages of development, a rapidly changing environment is traumatic. And in times like these, kids usually look to their parents for comfort. But when looking towards his mom, he'd only found more confusion. 
being told to lie in court with the threat of being separated from his siblings. How is he supposed to process that? I mean, all throughout childhood, kids are taught how to behave according to what's acceptable in society. And we look to our parents as we form our own characters and values. But if a parent teaches their child to be honest, and later tells them to lie, that's such a conflicting, confusing message. And on top of all this outer confusion, Heat was also beginning to experience a lot of inner confusion when it came to his identity. From a very early age, I felt like I was born in the wrong body. Physically and emotionally, I felt like I was a boy. And I just knew inside of me that there was something that was different. I, I definitely had body dysmorphia when I hit puberty as well. And just feeling so uncomfortable with, you know, growing breasts and the pressure of having to, to be feminine and like boys. And, and it was just like super awkward. All I can describe it as is just wanting to crawl out of your own skin. Do you have anyone you could talk to about that? No. So Saskatoon is very conservative. I remember when I was like, I think 15 years old, I ran away from home and I stole like a bottle of vodka from under the sink. And I ran to my friend's house and we got really drunk. My mom actually found out where I was and then she brought me home and I just started crying. And then she took me to the kitchen, was like, what's going on? And I, I told her, I think I'm bisexual. I didn't want to say like I was a lesbian because that's not how I identified. So you didn't have like the words to define your own identity yet. Exactly. Like, yeah. What was her response to that? Actually, the next day she took me to the gay and lesbian center in Saskatoon. Really? I know. I know. That's one of the nicest things she's ever done. But I went and talked to one of the counselors that they had and she gave me a bunch of pamphlets about groups that they had for queer youth and she put it in a brown paper bag nobody would really do that now they're just everybody's so open about their sexuality but you know that was in the mid 90s you gotta hide who you are sort of thing what was your worry in presenting your identity publicly and as you were seeing these people in media that maybe were a little bit like you how did that change your perception of how much you could show to the world or did it? Oh, I was so scared of showing who I was. So I, I actually hid it. I don't think I told any of my friends. I, I hid it until I came out to, to move to BC. That feeling of wearing a mask is probably something that a lot of people with body dysmorphia can relate to. Body dysmorphia is this overwhelming constant state of dissatisfaction with your body. It's like there's this massive disconnect between body and mind. And it's isolating because the people around you see one thing, but you're seeing something totally different. So it's hard for people to fully understand what's going on. Like he said, the overwhelming feeling of being in the wrong body, knowing others saw something completely different than what he felt, made him want to crawl out of his own skin. But aside from this discomfort, he also had to navigate the discomfort he felt in his assigned gender. He felt that his inner self didn't match up with his outer appearance. So he hid himself from the world, devouring movies and books in secret to help him figure out exactly what he was feeling. And finally, it all started to make sense. But these were the early days of Heath's journey. And his move to British Columbia would reveal even more. What was this new, new place like? And like, how did it contribute to maybe being more confident in your identity or at least taking steps to show who you were on the inside to the outside. So we moved to a place called Aldergrove, which is a super small cowboy. It was a tiny town. That would sound even more conservative than where you it, were. It was extremely, yeah. It was very homophobic. Like I remember being in grade 12 and then one of the teachers was like, what's another word for something that's not cool? And then some guy was like, gay. And so she used that word. And I remember being so angry that I wanted to like confront her after class and just just say like, what are you doing? Why are you using that word and saying that that's okay? Did you? I didn't, no. Why not? I guess I was afraid that that would pin me as somebody that was queer. Yeah, we just felt, we didn't really feel welcome. It just felt like we're in somebody else's place. You know, sure enough, 
a few months after we moved there, I again started running away. I found a girlfriend in high school, like pretty quick. Really? Yeah, and I ended up living with her and her family for a little bit. Do you remember, were you open about that relationship or was it still? No, we, we hit it. Hmm. And then my sister's, my sister's so smart. She knew about us and she, she caught us kissing. I think she caught us kissing. And so I was like, don't you tell anybody? And she's like, don't worry, I won't. She's always been a great sister. We're so close. And so, you know, she's like, remember when I caught you two kissing? (laughs) She's awesome. Despite his sister's initial shock, her support was a welcome response. It was much needed, especially after feeling so alone and isolated at school. I mean, here's his teacher, someone who's supposed to be the person students can turn to and trust, using the word gay in such a hurtful, offensive way. The two spaces where Heat would have sought comfort, home and school, had become inhospitable. So there wasn't a lot of places where he felt truly at ease. On one hand, he finally understood who he was. But on the other, he was forced to grapple with society's response. So I imagine that all of this was, in a way, bittersweet. Amidst the liberation he felt upon embracing his queer identity, there was this other weight. The realization that things weren't necessarily going to get easier from here. And as Heat will soon explain, things didn't get easier from there. At least not right away. I want to go back to these fights with your mom. There was... In 2004, you would, you would eventually have a fight and then just move. Could you tell me like the buildup to that moment when you eventually decided you had to leave? Yeah, we, we had just always butted heads ever since I was little. About what? I think I, I called her out on when she was being mean. I think that she could have possibly been bipolar just with the way that she'd behave in a, in a way where it was very erratic and angry and violent and so I was terrified of her growing up you know my from my sister's perspective she thought that that my mom picked on me and I remember being a kid and my sister was like don't say anything don't say anything she just always told me not to say anything and this is like my little sister and and I was like the older sibling she was like trying to protect you yeah exactly but the thing is I just couldn't shut my mouth and just not say anything but yeah, it was it was always me and my mom butting heads about the way that she's like treating us. It got to the point where, you know, I had my bedroom in the basement. I would take off the window in the in the laundry room, and so if she was chasing me, I would just run downstairs and then run into the laundry room, jump on the dryer, and jump out the window. That was like my escape plan. When did that escape plan become a move? Just once we moved to BC and I was in high school and then I had my girlfriend at the time and then she's like, just move in with me. And so I was living with her for a while and then I, we broke up and then I lived with a friend and then I ended up just moving to Vancouver when I was like 19. Yeah. Once I was like old enough to go to the bars, once I, you know, found a job, I, I just was like, screw this. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm moving, getting out of this crappy town and I'm, I'm going to go move to Vancouver. Moving to Vancouver represented a new start, but it took time to get there. Heat was, of course, a minor before, so he couldn't just get up and leave. He was confined to the space. But at the heart of the turmoil at home, something stands out to me, his relationship with his siblings. While their mom was unpredictable and oftentimes volatile, it seems like the three of them could kind of band together for support. They provide a sense of safety or even just an occasional moment of normal. But regardless of his love for them, he couldn't stay there forever. And why should he? Alder Grove in Saskatoon made him feel like an outsider. And if he was ever going to figure out exactly who he was and be fully embraced as that person, he was going to have to leave. And so he did, leading him to a world that would alter his life forever. You had been making trips to the the West End, Dave Village area. It's the queer part of, of the city. It's a place where you can be safe. There's a ton of queer clubs and restaurants. And so it, it, it was just like such a safe haven for me growing up. The first memory that comes to my mind is the first drag king show I've ever seen. 
and it was at a bar called Lick, and so it was uh, it was like queer crowd. So Lick was basically like a little hole in the wall. It was uh, a very long and narrow bar that was dark. It had like literally two light bulbs. I got a flyer, like I saw a flyer for a drag king show and I was like, what is this? I need to check it out. It was um, the Kings of Vancouver. That's what the, that's what the troupe was called. Did it make you want to be like, how can I do this too? Of course, yeah. And I, I went and like talked to, talk to the person that started this drag king troop. You did? Wait, wait, you just went up and they're like, all right, let's let's start chatting this person up. Yeah, I, I was like, I was like, this is so cool. And they're like, you should come to the next show. They actually had a drag king competition that same summer and I ended up winning. Wait, what? Yeah. Whoa, I have to back <laughs> up a little bit where I feel like we're skipping a couple steps. So uh, let, let's start from the point where you find out that there's this competition. Yeah. Uh, how do you prepare? So I remember I did the song Shook by Sean Desmond. And so he's also like a really amazing dancer. And so what I would do is watch his video. I recorded his video and I practiced the dance over and over and over again until I got it like perfect. Did you have to pick a new name? Did you have to pick your identity that you would embody on stage? What, what, what's the process along with picking a song? Yeah, so I, I just remember buying like a zip up white tracksuit that was super baggy. had like green and yellow stripes down the side. And I bought like a fake chain. I just felt like super, so confident because I'd practiced so much. And with my name, how I got the name Heat is my birth name was Heather. And so I just took out the her, like the H-E-R. And I was like, this is kind of like symbolic because I'm taking out That's the H-E-R. super symbolic. They love the name. Especially people that host a show, they're like, who's ready for some heat? Because there's just <laughs> so many jokes that you could do to like introduce a king named Heat. The judges were the people that were in the troupe. So they went back to the back of the stage and they talked about who, who would win. Yeah, they went to the back of the stage and they, they came out and they brought all of us that performed back on the stage. And then uh, they're like, the winner's heat. The person that ran the show and that was the, uh, they started like the troupe. They came up to me, Devin came up to me and was like, you won. Welcome to the troupe. Within the Vancouver Drag King community, Heat had finally found a home. The queer community found their space here decades before and now welcomed him with open arms. The West End story starts in 1969 when homosexuality was at long last decriminalized and the queer population was finally able to flourish. Roots of the LGBTQ community secured themselves to that area and Davy Village became a symbol of gay liberation. In 1969, sex between members of the same sex was decriminalized and the LGBTQ plus presence in Vancouver's West End started to rise. Now, wandering the streets, rainbow stripes line the pavement and pride flags wave in triumph. Here, he'd experienced acceptance in a way he never had before. He was encouraged to try something new and explore the most genuine version of himself. Through drag, he could finally take ownership of his identity and do so with pride. As he let Heather drift into the past, Heat became one of the kings of Vancouver. When I moved to Vancouver, I was working at like a, a coffee chain. And then I found the job on Davy Street at Moxie's. During that time, I was in the troupe and we were practicing, performing and traveling. How are you balancing that? You were, you were traveling, doing shows, and also tell me a little bit about what those shows were like. So there, there was a, a yearly conference called IDKE, which is International Drag King Extravaganza. Gender performers from all over the world would converge on like one city. And so I remember we went to DC. There was like this awesome drag king, Max Voltage. Great name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was awesome. And so he organized this like he was basically like the ringleader and actually they did a performance and he was a ringleader so 
so what it was is it was like a three-hour drag team show from with people all over the world that's awesome yeah there was like different bars that you could go to that would have many drag king shows each night i'm just thinking about just the creatives i know when i go to these parties i'm always interested like why why are you why are you doing this how does that mesh with why i'm doing this did you have any of those conversations or do you does that jolt any kind of memory of a conversation you had I think it mostly, a lot of people said the same thing, which is like finding your family. There's like connectedness and performing together and like being together. And then also, you know, friendship and you're able to, you know, meet meet friends from around the country. And I think there's that connectedness of taking your power back by performing. What do you mean taking your power back? Some people felt like they had more confidence as presenting as in a masculine way than if they would, if they were not presenting as masculine. That's something that I observed as a young drag king. Seeing people in drag and then seeing people out of drag and how they would behave and how would they present themselves. Drag gave Heat his power back, but it also gave him a family, a deep sense of community and belonging. Their shared passion for performance created a sense of brotherhood and empowerment a feeling that many of them may not have experienced at any other point in their lives. But there was something else here that he was drawn to. Drag defies the boundaries put in place by society's limited perception of gender. Here, it wasn't like any one gender owns certain behavioral traits. Everything was fluid. There were no limits. But performing maleness, he was able to redefine it. When I think back on the previous years of Heat's life, all the moves, his family's volatility, the years of hiding, there's just this pervasive sense of instability. And the drag troupe was the complete opposite of that. This was a new kind of adopted family, one that wasn't official on paper, but every bit as meaningful. Moxie had opened this door for him and was about to open one more. Once I started working at Moxie's, I had been asked to open up another restaurant, like another Moxie's in Ontario. So how did you build up the credibility at Moxie to the point where like, he is the guy to do this? I don't know. I was just like, I guess I just found out that I was good at cooking. I was good at staying organized and being like a leader. I'm so competitive. Just some of the guys that work there, they didn't, they didn't care enough to, to learn as much as they could. And for me, like, I'd always have this ability to connect or want to be taught by the chef. The chef at the time, she recommended that I get chosen. So she was chosen to go over to Ontario. And so she chose me to go with her. Were you excited? Were you nervous? Oh, I was, I was so stoked. Was there any moments that where you felt like you didn't have things under control? No, I was like very confident because it was the first time I had ever done anything like that before. So like I just had like energy, like so much energy and like I was just very enthusiastic. It was like the first time I'd been like, you know, the owners are relying on me to teach these young cooks. And the thing is, like, I was young, too. How old were you? I must have been like 23. And so did this confidence in your ability to cook well and lead translate to like confidence in your identity like did you feel comfortable telling people maybe outside of the troop who you were i had actually already changed my pronouns because i remember drag had given me the confidence to come out as trans and so i had come out as trans at moxie's i was so close with the guys and so i just told them in the kitchen like before service i said like i am i'm a guy i'm a dude and i would like to be referred to as heat and say like the right correct pronouns please like he him and everybody was so cool like there was no issues what did they say back they're like yeah we love you we support you we were such a tight kitchen crew we were all friends we hung out all the time they actually would always come to my drag shows the support that heat found in this community was unlike anything he'd experienced before he had a job he was good at and enjoyed Just like the first time he did drag, he didn't feel intimidated. The nights of performing in the spotlight had empowered him, and this confidence folded into his work in the kitchen. 
It was with this confidence that he was able to take the step to reveal who he truly was, Heat. He didn't have to hide anymore or run away like he did as a kid through the basement window. These people embraced him. They respected him. Here, Heat mentions something that I think is worth touching upon, the significance of pronouns. As the University of Colorado Boulder puts it, when someone asks you to use their pronouns, they are asking you to respect their identity. And that's basically it. Respect was something that Heat's colleagues gave him. Everything was looking good for him at Moxie's until things changed. So I ended up leaving Moxie's soon after my brother passed away. He passed away in April 21st, 2007. I was sleeping and I had a dream that my brother, we were in our old house and we're in the basement. And in the dream, he told me that he hurt his head and that he's like, something happened to me and his head was bleeding. And then I woke up. I I was like, that's so weird. That's so weird. And then I went back to sleep and then my roommate banged on my door and woke me up and was like, had this phone in his, his cell phone in his hand. And it was my sister. She's like crying and she said that Kyle's dead. All the blood drained from like my, my face and I felt like this like hit in the bottom of my stomach and I was like shaking and I felt dizzy. It, it was the worst day of my life when I found out my brother died. How did you begin to just like go about your life after that? I basically was like started hiding my emotions. I became very closed off. I changed after that. Like I wasn't as happy as I was. I had like this darkness about me. I was drinking a lot more. Your mom passed away soon after, right? Yeah, my, my mom passed away like a year after. I was at work. I remember my friends coming into the kitchen, like they just randomly showed up and they had this like look on their face. And my friend had a cell phone in her hand. I was so scared, I started to cry because I'm like, somebody's dead. And then I heard heard my sister's voice on the other end of the line and she said, mom's dead. And then I just like completely like crumbled and I just like started sobbing. I just was so like shocked. I'm like, how the hell is this happening again? And I went to New Westminster, that's where my sister was living, and then I just stayed at her place. And then I remember, like, waking up in the middle of the night, and I felt, like, this presence around me. And I, like, didn't open up my eyes because I was afraid, but I felt, like, somebody holding me around my chest and, like, lifting me slightly off of the bed. I, like, knew it was my mom. I just felt her presence there, and I knew it was her saying goodbye. When Heat woke up to the sight of his shaking roommate, he was hurled into the darkest time of his life. This was a shattering loss. That's a level of personal hell that most people can't imagine. Like so many others, Heat turned to alcohol as a remedy for the pain, to disconnect from the emotions that riddled his mind. But as tragedy struck again, Heat was unprepared. And the complicated relationship he had with his mother only added to the pain. His mother's unexpected death extinguished any hope of reconciliation or resolution. This adds a different dimension to grief. If there was any hope of restoring his relationship with her, it was gone. So he now had to mourn that loss as well. And feeling her presence, sensing her goodbye, this was a comfort. But Heat was desperate to stay afloat. So he continued to self-medicate. You described this darkness that had already been building up from your brother's death. And then you're just hit again so soon after. like. How do you keep moving? I just started partying all the time and I started doing cocaine and just basically like drinking my problems away and still doing drag, but I, I wasn't like doing it for fun really anymore. I was doing it as a distraction. I just became distracted by the party scene, but uh, I had some like really great people around me. My chef, like my best friend, the best man at my wedding, He was just like, dude, like, what's going on? 
I think that you should like decide what you want to do with your career. And like, if you really do want to focus on cooking and like being a chef, you need to like go to school. And so that's kind of where it started was I enrolled in culinary school and like took the apprenticeship program. Once I got there, I was like the top of my class after my course was done. So I started to get the passion back for cooking and like kind of just being like, okay, like you just need to start focusing on this and, and actually stop doing drag. After my mom passed away, I stopped doing drag. And then I started to focus my energy on, on cooking. Why was that? Anytime that I was asked to perform, I would start to get like anxiety. And I think that might have to do with like the fact that I was about to perform the night that my mom passed away. And I think I just wanted to grow up and make a change, like not be in that scene anymore because I was partying so hard. How did you view culinary school? And also, is there like a story in there that you feel like represents that change? You know, for me, it was, it built up my confidence and know that I do have what it takes to like be a good chef. And like, you know, I don't know why I was so like afraid to go to school. After I had gone to culinary school, I, when I came back into the kitchen, I was like way more passionate, way more focused. I was wanting to like, you know, get my certificates and, and I did want to get promoted. And then I started like wanting to make my own menus. How did you go about making your own menus? We had an opportunity to make our own feature menu for like a month. I remember um, I signed up to volunteer at the San Francisco Food and Wine Festival. So like went down and I, I volunteered for the whole entire weekend and I went by myself too. So that really also inspired me to um, just focus more on cooking. Inspired by traditional Southern cooking and celebrity chef Chris Constantino, he continued using his passion as a guiding light towards emotional recovery. After his mother's death, he clung to distractions, anything to drown out the pain and keep him from succumbing to his grief. Psychologists call this coping mechanism experiential avoidance. But studies show that this fake it till you make it approach to mourning just doesn't work. You can't escape grief. You can only delay its full impact. But Heat eventually settled on a positive distraction and threw himself into cooking in culinary school. Unlike his other attempts to block his emotions, this turned out to be more than a mere distraction. By throwing himself into fulfilling work, he reignited his sense of purpose. Revitalized and eager to learn, he was ready to embrace new opportunities. So like my best friend, who's like, he's one of my first mentors I ever had. He saw a post of a job available at the Fairmont. But he was like, you should apply at this hotel. And I was like, again, with me saying, I'm not good enough to work there. They're never going to hire me. I'm not good enough. I, I go for this interview and Atticus interviews me and he has so much energy. He's like this huge, this tall lumbering guy with like, you know, dark eyes, dark hair. He gave me a tour of the kitchen and they did everything fresh there. Like they had a butcher program. And so I was immediately drawn to like his presence, his leadership. They're like, do you want to come work? And I was like, can I work in that kitchen? Can I work in the cold kitchen? And so once I started working there, it wasn't soon after until he started teaching me how to make sausages and how to make bacon. And did you like it? Oh, I loved it. It's because it's creative. It takes so much time to make all of those products that it's very rewarding to try something that you've cured for like, you know, 12 days. To go from like cooking on a hotline where everything's so quick and so erratic to go to something that's very like almost soothing and to have something that's also your own station and you have your own creativity is just so such polar opposites that it was just such a nice change there was like a calmness about it out of all the kitchens i've worked in and out of all the experience that i have that was definitely the highlight of the, all the years that i've spent cooking so working at that hotel was amazing because obviously i met my wife there my future wife i met her there on the first day they show this orientation video. She was in the video and she's like, cooking is like love. Like she said something so cheesy, but I remember she was like so cute. And I was like, oh, she's so like hot. You know, it's my first day and I go into this walk-in cooler. I see like this 
woman standing there and she's kind of like crouched down, like heaving, chucking boxes onto the shelf. And she looks up at me and it's it's the girl, the cute girl from the video orientation video. And I like the first words I say, I'm like, oh, hey, I know you. And then she like, she's like, huh, what? And I was like, from the orientation video, like, I and she's like, can you help me put this order away? Like, didn't even say anything. She's like, dang, I'm just giving you sass. And so I was like, oh, that's not nice. But also she intrigued me a little bit too, because I was like, I'm going to get her to like me. And then I messaged her and I was like, hey, you should come to this bar. Or you should come to the butcher and bullet. And then she like literally showed up, even though she had to work at 5 a.m. the next day. She showed up at like one in the morning or like 12 or something like that. And then pretty much we, we had like started going up like right away. And then... We've been together ever since. I guess this is a good reminder that if you put your mind to something, you can do anything. Well, I don't know if this always works out when looking for a spouse, but it did for Heat. At this point, this had been his life, taking risks. So maybe it all felt a little bit less intimidating for him. Either way, good things came out of this new job. Gaining the position at the Fairmont provided affirmation. He was talented. He did belong there. It was the kind of affirmation that in his younger years, he hadn't received. Now he could relish the fact that he'd made it in here on his own with the unwavering support of his community, his second family. Here in the cold kitchen, he rediscovered peace. He could take his time and engage with his senses, relishing the textures, scents, and flavors of his ingredients. By focusing all his energy on mixing aromatic wine and spices or rolling poultry into perfect pinwheels, he could quiet his worries about the future. He could finally begin to look beyond the past. But while Heat had gotten off to an amazing start at the Fairmont, it wasn't all smooth sailing. I actually saw a guy that I went to culinary school with. We had we had a course together. During that course, when I was in school, I had not legally changed my name yet. What happened is you didn't raise your hand for roll call in school. If you had not raised your hand, um, then they would write you down as like absent. And so the teacher, the instructor had called me by my dead name. And so I was like so scared to raise my hand because I'm like obviously trans so so I raised my hand so that outed me to everybody and so this guy that I saw down the road like a year later at the hotel he outed me to everybody he outed me to a bunch of people at the kitchen he told like two people or three people and then I guess it it just had spread around that I was trans the new guy's trans somebody went to HR I don't know who it was and then he ended up getting reprimanded he got sent home Atticus sent him home he ended up like quitting. I ended up talking to him afterwards. And I was like, what did you out people about me? But he said he's like truly apologetic about it. But the thing is like outing someone as trans is extremely dangerous. And like, it's just, you could like get somebody killed or really hurt. But the thing is, everybody had been so supportive. He didn't give his former classmate the power to taint this amazing opportunity. Whether he was motivated by malice or pure ignorance, Heat's old classmate crossed a major line. Outing someone makes him a potential target for discrimination and violence. These threats were very real. At the time of this incident, Canada's federal government didn't protect against discrimination based on gender identity. In the year that Heat joined the Fairmont, a trans person was reported murdered every 36 hours. And the trans suicide rate in Canada was between 20 and 40%. And even though Heat was in a liberal city, there was no guarantee that his employers would take this issue seriously. But things played out in his favor, and he went from having an authority figure actively promoting homophobia to having his boss stand up for him. Now, Heat was able to let his guard down and open up. The hotel really brought me back out of my shell again because I had really like closed off from doing drag. And so I became like super shy and closed off. But once I started like doing events within the hotel and like a lot of um, volunteering events and like there's this huge festival that happens every year called Brewery and the Beast. And it's like a huge outdoor barbecue where all the best restaurants in the city get together and they have like a big free for all, all you can eat, all you can drink. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Atticus was like, do you want to make the sausages for this? And so I'd made like three different kinds of sausages and it was like, I just felt like a superstar again and I felt like really excited about the path that I, the chosen path that I had taken. Like going back to school and then working at a place that was like at a higher level. 
And also like a place that would give you opportunities like that. Yeah, it was great to like get promoted. And then a year after that, I had won like star of the year. So I'd won employee of the year for the whole hotel. This part of Heat's life seems like a mental turning point in a way. It's like he's standing back, looking at his life from a bird's eye view, fully acknowledging all he'd accomplished. It was a pinch me, I must be dreaming moment, but he wasn't dreaming and he knew it. For so long, he felt inadequate and he wasn't alone in this. Research shows that both transgender teens and people with childhood trauma often struggle with self-esteem. And while Heat wasn't a teenager anymore, it could take years to silence all the negative self-talk and repair your self-image, but Heat refused to let self-doubt dominate his life. For so long, he hadn't had a space he felt accepted, a place where he could express himself freely. But the Brewing the Beast Festival, like the Davy Village Drag Clubs, gave Heat support and an audience. They made him feel like a star. In light of this, he slowly began to accept that he was worthy, worthy of both praise and of happiness. And once he returned from his jet set adventures, he would be met with another unexpected opportunity. How did you come across the Facebook ad for the Aboriginal Business and Entrepreneurship Skills Training Program? I was just checking like Facebook messages and then the ad popped up for the Aboriginal uh, Business Entrepreneurship Training Program. And it said it was like a free program for anybody Indigenous that wants to learn how to start a business. And it was hosted at the um, Aboriginal Friendship Centre, which is like a huge um, cultural hub for Indigenous people in Vancouver. It has like workshops. It's a resource centre for a lot of people looking for like jobs or education. The thing is, I didn't even really know what I wanted to do. Like, I just kind of just wanted to take the course and just see how it was. Because I had people asking me, Keith, you need to start your own baking business. You need to start your own sausage business. You have a talent for this. You should do it. And so I just kind of wanted to see, like, could I possibly do this? Should, should I just take this free program and just kind of see where it goes? And so as I took the course, I was able to kind of conceptualize what I want to do in a way that was, like, not going to compromise my job at the hotel. What was that idea? So the idea that I had was I wanted to make artisan bacon, like small batch bacon, and in different flavors, and wanted to sell it at the farmer's market. And so that was a way that was kind of like a low risk. You know, I don't have to quit my job. I already know how to make bacon. There isn't really a market for it at the farmer's market. And so I was like, I think I could roll with this and just kind of see where it goes. Maybe I could try it out for a summer and see where it takes me. So we had like a break after the course, we had a month to like get presentation together and a product together and do a presentation in front of like our instructor. There was like two chiefs there. I had made different batches of bacon each week leading up to the presentation with different flavors and trying different glazes. Basically, we had cooked off the bacon so that everybody can, in the room could try it and that the judges could try it. And then I, I had a pack of bacon for each of the judges as well. And then throughout the whole course, like I had a notebook, we all got a notebook. I was like, just kept on drawing it over and over again, like left arrow, right arrow, down arrow. And then I was like, I just, I knew that I wanted to have like an arrow in my, in my branding name and like in my logo. And so I feel like the arrow for me represents like my indigenous heritage, but also having like a goal and just like overcoming obstacles. So that's, that's why I named my business One Arrow. And what do they think of uh, the business plan? I won an award for like the best presentation. I love how you always casually like <laughs> mention that you won all these competitions. Like, oh yeah, I forgot I won this thing. <laughs> While talking to Heat, I began to notice just how often he glosses over that kind of stuff. Stuff that's, well, kind of a big deal. I mean, if it weren't for me prompting him with a question, I would think he forgot about it entirely. But it's not that he forgets or doesn't think about it. It's just that he mostly cares about the experience, the inspiration and platform that his program could give him. The pride of winning best presentation came second to the opportunity for self-expression. Heat has been waiting for that opportunity for self-expression for a long time. For a large part of his life, he couldn't emote, couldn't let the world know who he really was. But now this program was accepting the parts of his identity that he previously had to hide like those LGBTQ pamphlets he tucked away in a paper bag all those years ago. Now he was leaving with experience, validation, and a logo, one that represented the necessity of moving forward and the significance of heritage. For One Arrow, 
this was only the beginning. And so what did that mean? Does that mean you're like, all right, let this, I have like a little bit of positive affirmation. Let me start creating this business. As soon as we got back, I was like, all right, I got to start figuring out my packaging, my labels, health inspector, like permit. The first place was like, where am I going to make this bacon? So through a friend, I found out that there was a butcher shop that was like a block from my house. The guy, Pete, he's like, yeah, you can run out my space and you can make your bacon here. I bought like a smoker from Canadian Tire, like a Bradley smoker, which is like one of those basic, basic smokers. And I bought a cart so I would wheel the smoker on a cart two blocks to his butcher shop. And then I'd set up the smoker outside on his patio and smoke my bacon and then go home. And then, you know, I don't know, watch TV and then go back to the smoker and then um, use their slicer and start packaging up my bacon. And I applied for the farmer's market, the Vancouver farmer's market, and uh, they accepted me right away. And what was the reception? So like that first day of the farmer's market, is it just your booth and the bacon? The first day was not good. I was like really shy to talk to people, kind of stumble over my words because I would describe every single flavor I had. And then I could see them like kind of, I'm like losing them. A Drifting bit. away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, shit, I really need to tighten up my spiel. I think once I started an Instagram account and then posting photos and like having the people like showing kind of the story of One Arrow through the photos on Instagram, I started to get like more followers. It's such like an inspirational story for some people where they just kind of want to see how you're doing and just follow you along for the ride. After time, I started getting more requests for more farmer's market dates. And then another farmer's market organization wanted us to go to their farmer's market. So to go from like two a month, and then sometimes we're doing like two in one day. So I started to get like, I'd have teams like we'd split off. So I'd have one person at another farmer's market. I'd be at one. And uh, last year we did like 60 farmer's markets. 60? Yeah, it was nuts. 60 farmer's markets? Yeah, in the summer. It oh my was God. Nuts. Yeah. So, so it's just scaled like massively. Yeah, I had to uh, obviously leave the butcher shop. And then um, a former chef of mine, he was at a catering company. He was like, I hear you started a baking business. Do you want to come work for me for two years? Sign a contract. I'll let you rent out the space for cheap. And I was like, done. So I was able to like grow my business for like two years. That's super exciting. So it seems like we caught you at a, a big inflection point. I kind of want to go back to you getting in touch with your family again, because I know that happened in like recent years um, that you've been getting in touch with more of your your heritage, um, which seems to be coalesce and, and go in the same vein as building this business, One Era, which also represents your Indigenous background. So how have you gone about doing that? And you can start wherever you'd like. The business has really helped me connect with a lot of Indigenous people in Vancouver. We're not from the same nation, but there's still that bond that you have of like the struggle that you go through. And also, like, just knowing the history of Indigenous people across Canada, like, we have that same pain that we could relate to. And then I had asked for some information from the post-adoption registry about my birth father. And so they sent me a letter in the mail that said, we cannot track down your birth father. Here's his birth name. And so I was able to find the, my birth father's, like, family. And then we started messaging on Facebook. So, yeah, I've been speaking with my cousin she's like my older cousin and so it's just really cool like she has she sent me really cool photos like old photos from like my great 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 grandfather's first home and then she like circled where my birth father was and like there was like eight kids in the photo and so I was like yeah that's my that's my birth dad what did that feel like it felt good but also like I know for a fact that my birth father has like 40 kids across Saskatchewan like I just kind of was like blown away that I have 40 half siblings across you know Canada. Anyways, yeah, just finding my birth family, even if they're cousins and aunties and uncles, that's pretty cool. And they've welcomed me. They said, do you want to come to Alberta and come visit us? And you're more than welcome. You have like a home at our home. So you connected with your biological father. Um, and I also know you connected with your adopted father. Can you talk about that? So obviously after so many years, my sister and I had felt so much guilt about you know, going to court and almost putting our adoptive father in jail. My sister said that she got a she got a message from our adoptive father and is like, 
She was like, he messaged me and he said, there's no hard feelings, basically he said that. And so my sister was like, do you want to go visit him? And so I ended up flying there two years ago, two summers ago. What was that like? It was like crazy, like, because I cried when I saw him and he gave me like a bunch of photos in an envelope that the only photos that my mom left him with. It was really cool to like see him um, and connect with him again. And uh, we we currently are talking right now because he ended up not coming to our wedding. My wife and I was wedding. He's Jehovah Witness. And so I guess they found out that I was trans and um, they're not allowed to talk to us. So they couldn't come to the wedding because they don't condone that in their church. It was tough. Like, I'm, I'm very hurt that he didn't come to the wedding. It was, like, so hurtful to, like, make that connection and then be like, we're getting married next year, and then he just doesn't come. I'm sorry I can't come because of, you know, my religion doesn't allow me to support your wedding and support your marriage. I don't know. I guess, I, I like, I look at your whole story, and it seems like it's one of this, like, unique person that kind of falls outside the normal realms of what most people would accept. And then you finding these communities that embolden you to do great things and then be a, a leader for the trans community, for the gay community, for people like you. These communities embolden heat and heat in turn could embolden them. But in the midst of his success and the warm embrace of his newfound family, he still has to grapple with the challenges of his past. In connecting with his father, he found closure. It was like a missing puzzle piece had been put back into place. But as much as this new relationship brought joy, it also opened the doors for hurt. And I have no doubt that during the pure happiness and celebration of Heat's wedding, he still felt the absence of his dad. But I think what I'm getting from Heat is that it's just one puzzle piece. And the past several years have been filled with new pieces turning up one by one, filling the gaps which for a long time were missing. The image of his life, of his family, is slowly starting to complete. While it may never be perfect, can be whole. And moving forward, it seems like that's exactly what he's aiming for. I guess like a final question is like, looking back to your younger self, that person that was trying to find that community, and also people you know, around the world that are trying to find that community where they belong. What advice would you give that person? I think that being fearless for me has gotten me to great places. So even though I've been like scared shitless, I was so scared to move to BC and so scared to like leave things that I felt comfortable in, making those choices of taking a leap and being like, just trust, just try it out, just trust this risk and just jump and take it. I think taking those risks of um, being uncomfortable and being afraid has brought me to success. If I hadn't taken risks and been afraid, who knows, I could still be in Saskatchewan, not have transitioned, been married possibly, and like living my whole life alive and being depressed. And it doesn't have to be a big crazy step. It's just like those small steps of doing things that you're afraid of, but knowing that it's something that you want to do because you're passionate about it or you feel like it's, it's like the right decision. Heath's life has been defined by a series of leaps, each one unpredictable and not always comfortable. But as he said, without them, he may have never broken the barriers that got him to where he is today. Then again, I don't know. I feel like Heat would have always found a way to break through these barriers, to grasp hold of who he knew he was and relentlessly pursue that person. There's a determination in him that seems to defy limits, limits that were placed by society, by his community, by himself. It was the same determination that pulled him through the pain, the loss of his early years, propelled him into the culinary scene, and ultimately empowered him to claim his identity. He is, like the drawings he once scrawled across his notepad, an arrow moving forward. This is Heat, driven, defiant, and passionate, uniting his community through food while representing those who have been underrepresented for so long. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. 
Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callan Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.